we're in Acts 20. That's page 1337 in your pew Bibles. It is rare, says one of my commentaries, that anyone knows what the future may hold for them. It is even rarer that when one knows trouble lies around the corner, he continues on the same path. (laughs) Right? Uh, I'm a cautioned person, cautious person. I love comfort, (laughs) love security, I love the easy road. But why are people, why are Christians boarding planes to go to Ukraine? Why are Christians risking their lives in hostile areas? Our evangelical friends' missions arm are sending out three teams, some to Eastern Europe, not too far from the action, some to areas with high Muslim population, some of those Muslim extremists. Why? Trouble could lie not too far ahead for some of these people. And if missionaries are there for good, what kind of life would it be for them? And it's not like the missionaries or the even the people heading to Ukraine, sure, maybe a few if they're naive might not have thought it through, but no doubt they've weighed the costs. Most people know, especially in Ukraine, what if the Russians were to advance where I'm at and I don't get out? We're in, again, Acts chapter 20, and Paul knows what the future holds for him. The Holy Spirit has told him, Paul knows that trouble lies ahead, but simultaneously our, our passage tells us that nevertheless he's in a hurry to get to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there says Paul. Paul doesn't have a death wish, with death wish, though. That's not his point. I invite you to stand, if you're able to, one last time in honor of hearing the Word of God with me this morning. We'll be reading Acts chapter 20, verses 13 through 27. Yes, I was able to get into my time travel machine, took a camera. So, verse 13 We went on ahead to the ship and sailed to Assos where we were to take Paul aboard. He had arranged this because he was going there on foot. And when he met us at Assos, we took him aboard and went on to Midilene. And Dean will tell you if I'm just crucifying all these names. (laughs) Sailing on from there, we arrived the next day opposite Chios. The day after that, we arrived at Samos. And on the following day, we came to Miletus. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia because he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they came to him, he said, You know how I have lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I arrived in the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears especially in the trials that came upon me through the plots of the Jews. I did not shrink back from declaring anything that was helpful to you as I taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and Greeks alike about the repentance to God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. 
I only know that in town after town the Holy Spirit warns me that chains and afflictions await me. But I consider my life of no value to, to me if only I may finish my course and complete the ministry I have received from the Lord Jesus Christ, or from the Lord Jesus, the ministry of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have preached the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole will of God. Let's pray. Father, um, I feel like one phrase says they don't make them like they used to. Uh, I am convicted by Paul's um, devotion to you. I think many of us here have it cushy. And we, I don't know if we would be as obedient as Paul, but also one of the things you reminded me as I was praying before the service is that your grace is sufficient. Father, where we lack, you make up. All we need to do is be obedient to your Holy Spirit. Every step of the way, please help us to continue to say yes to you. Help us not to neglect your Spirit's prompting. Help us instead that by grace we would be obedient because we love you. Help us to serve you because we love you. Please say whatever it is that you desire. Get me out of the way. Help us all to have open ears and hearts to receive your word. Help us to have soft hearts and not hard hearts. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Like Paul, we know that Jesus could say that he was headed towards Jerusalem knowing that danger was ahead, but he went anyway. Several times, three times are recorded in the Gospel accounts. Jesus shared with his disciples that he knew what awaited him, but he kept going. Because he knew his service was for his sheep, his life was for the sheep, he is the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world, the Lamb of God. Luke, author of both this book and Acts, this book and the book of Luke, there we go, (laughs) because we're in Acts, is known at times to mirror episodes or symbols or stories or phrases from his book, from both of his books. In Luke 9.51, we heard that Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, or as the ESV states, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And it's this moment, this turning point in Luke where Jesus seems determined. He knows what lies ahead. He's headed there anyway. His face is like flint, so says one of the suffering servant poems in Isaiah. This is his mission. And as the rest of Jesus' travels seems to be drawing closer and closer to Jerusalem, so it is now here for Paul, there is this spirit of tenacity. We see this in the first section of my sermon, face set towards Jerusalem in verses 13 through 17. Again, verse 13 says, we, Luke uses this pronoun often, showing that he was with Paul and company to record these events, went on ahead to the ship and sailed 
to Assos where we were to take Paul aboard. He had arranged this because he was going there on foot. So Paul and company split here. It's, it's interesting because only a few verses later we see Paul is anxious to reach Jerusalem. So why is he not taking the fastest form of travel on boat? Well, maybe he hadn't made up his mind to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost yet, or some suggest maybe he wasn't too fond of sailing. <laughs> so maybe if he could ignore it, he would. Some suggest that perhaps he wanted this time to be alone, not unlike Jesus, who sometimes parted company with his disciples to pray and be alone with God. And we're going to see later in this text that it seems Paul has known for some time that he's going to suffer in Jerusalem, so it's not a a theory that I'm going to blow up to a certainty, but it's not beyond reason to wonder if that's what Paul is doing. You guys go on. I need some time to spiritually prepare what's about to happen. Verse 14, And when he met met us at Assos, we took him aboard and went on to Midilene. Sailing on from there, we arrived the next day opposite Chios. The day after that, we arrived at Samos, and on the following day, we came to Miletus. Aren't you glad you have all these city names? (laughs) There's going to be a geography test for our sermon. I'm just kidding. Um, But these are all big names of significant Greek cities where significant Greek people have actually come from. Probably why Luke lists the cities. It's easily identifiable for his reader. Paul is at Miletus. That's where he's at. But Luke wants us to make sure we don't miss. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia because he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. And I've been saying uh, the province of Asia is current-day Turkey. The province of Asia was the Roman name for that place. So Paul has a, a history in Ephesus Uh, Chapter 19, verses 8 and 10, suggests over two years, if not almost three. While there, we find that it had a huge impact on Turkey or Asia. We said that all, we saw that all the province of Asia was ministered to by this church in Ephesus. Whenever Paul finally left Ephesus, it wasn't without a bang. The entire city was literally in a riot. So he has some impact there, lots of history. It's no wonder why Paul didn't want to go into Ephesus himself. He'd probably feel obligated, likely to visit some people, or he find he might find some of his old enemies there as well. You know, whenever I go to Lewiston, I have a grandma there, and sometimes I feel guilty if I don't go and visit. So, but um, Paul doesn't know how much longer he'll be around, and he'll he doesn't even know if he's going to see the Ephesian church again. He's headed to Jerusalem, so he decides to just call the elders. Again, verse 17, from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders. Now, the Greek word for elders is presbyteroi, (laughs) where we get the term presbyter, and where the Presbyterian church gets their name. Verse 28 of these same people, they're called overseers, but the Greek term is episkopoi, episcopal church. So all these churches seem to have names from the Bible, even friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. The elders of the church. It's about a 30-mile journey to Ephesus from where Paul was at. Most say that people in that day could probably travel mostly 20 miles in a day. 
So it's a three-day journey for these messengers just to go to Ephesus, bring back elders. <clears throat> and while Paul's face is set towards Jerusalem, we find that his heart is set on the gospel. That's the point of verses 18 through 21. We read, When they came to him, he said, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I arrived in the province of Asia. Paul is speaking of his consistency. How I lived the whole time was I was with you. I actually like what the King James said here. What manner I have been with you at all seasons. As one of my commentators says, Paul is not a fair weather Christian. And as you can see, I'm not either. I came here in the rain today. No. Um, but he's ready in season and out of season. You know, if somebody found him in the middle of the night, he apparently was there. If people inconvenienced him, he took it in stride and did his ministry. And we read about his time there that the synagogue kicked him out, kicked his meetings out, so he set up meetings next door at a sort of a schoolhouse, a lecture hall. You know, there are leaders in any sort of situation, whether it be church or not, where if hard times come, maybe they're hard to find. If good times come, they're the ones to blame for the good times, if you ask them. Leaders might lock up under stress. Leaders who perhaps might abuse the funds. Leaders who might take advantage of situations. Paul is saying, I'm not one of those leaders. He says, I serve the Lord with humility. I don't know if you know this, but our world has a slogan, and I would say that they have it down, pride is a virtue. You never see humility as a virtue. Some people, uh, usually Christians, might speak of humility, but even in the Christian church, it seems like Christians love to flock to angry, loud, and quite honestly, arrogant preachers. Because they sound like they mean business, and nobody else means business. Romans were no different. They looked up to proud, arrogant, confident, cocky leaders. Humility is what Paul would encourage the Ephesians to have, actually, as he wrote his letter to them later in life. Paul says in Ephesians 4, As a prisoner in the Lord, then, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling you have received, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, and with diligence to persevere in the, un the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. If you want to see a church maintain unity, then you need to maintain humility. It's kind of hard to fight with humble people. You're wrong, I probably am. <laughs> Paul said he served the Lord and the Ephesian church with humility and with tears, especially in the trials that came upon me through the plots of the Jews, again, having to be shut down at the synagogue, where we were told that some Jews were involved in the riot too. So I did not shrink back from declaring anything that was helpful to you as I taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and Greeks alike about repentance to God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. This I did not shrink back is all one Greek word that I will not pronounce since I don't intend to test you on it, but it has the imagery or the meaning of drawing aback, stowing away, or, or cloaking, its if not sugarcoating. It's actually used of Peter in Galatians 2.12 when Paul confronts him because Peter was a, 
a friend to the Gentiles only when the Gentiles were around, but when some of the Christians who seemed to be still on the fence, if, you know, these Gentiles could be allowed into the church, Paul writes, for before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to draw back. That's the same Greek word, the sort of compromising convictions and separate himself for fear of those in the circumcision group. Again, the group of Christians who thought Gentiles needed to be more Jewish before they could be Christian. And Paul is saying that while in Ephesus, he didn't compromise. He didn't draw back. Jewish audiences who were waiting for the Messiah did not want to hear that he in fact came, and they were large part to blame for killing the Messiah. (laughs) Paul himself was an adamant of enemy of Christ in his body, and it was a hard message to preach, let alone hear. Some Jews, as we just talked about, didn't want to hear that the Messiah was supposed to be the next King David was in fact a spiritual king of a spiritual kingdom wherein everyone was invited. Many Jews preferred that their own Jewish king and their physical Jewish kingdom where Jews were only allowed. They didn't want to share the blessings. It was a hard message. It was a hard cultural wall to get over. You mean these Gentiles that I've been told all my life to not be like and to separate from, they are in fact invited? (laughs) And depending on culture, time, and place, there will always be parts of the gospel, parts of the scripture that are not socially acceptable, are hard to hear, hard to preach. But the mark of a faithful Christian are those who are able to humbly maintain their convictions and not shrink back from believing it, practicing it, preaching it, or proclaiming it. In an earlier draft of my sermon, I had a huge illustration that swallowed the entire sermon, but my loving wife reminded me to just keep it simple, stupid. So, if you are interested in Bible translations, I have a much expanded analysis of what I'm about to tell you on the table next to the church front doors or they will be in the facing bench next week. But to keep it short, one translation called the NRSVUE, which just came out. There is the NRSV that came out in 1989. That was the year I was born. But 1989 NRSV was already a little suspect by some, but the UE, the updated edition, seems to be a bit more suspect. There are some interesting changes in places like 1 Corinthians 6.9 and 1 Timothy 1.10. I'm just going to share with you those three translations of those two verses. The BSB, the NRSV 89, the NRSV UE, which was done in 2021. And I go into the detail on the handouts, but to cut to the chase, my own estimation is that the translators behind the NRSV UE have not uncovered some previously not known information to give anyone cause for wonder on what the Greek is here. 600 years of English translation has not been missing something entirely. And any changes made here, I believe, are for reasons of culture and not scholarship. These verses are taking uh, clear references to homosexuality and making them just men who engage in illicit sex. And again, I don't think that there was some... and I. And the handout, I bring up the NASB, which was recently done in 2020. And none of these guys seem to be confused about these words. So, in short, 
I wonder if the new translators were shrinking back from declaring God's word. Paul didn't seem to do such things. But it's in the middle of Paul's sermon to these elders that the theme of, uh, the first theme of our passage of his fates set towards Jerusalem returns. Picking it up in verse 22, we read, And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in town after town, the Holy Spirit warns me that chains and afflictions await me, but I consider my life of no value to me. Now, this has actually been a question raised to me in conversation about this chunk of Acts. What do you think about Paul here? He's being told what awaits him in Jerusalem. He's told that chains and afflictions await him. Nevertheless, he goes as if Paul's going here is somehow actually a form of disobedience or denial or rejection of the Holy Spirit. He's, he's hearing about what's going to happen, but he decides to go anyways. And then actually in the next chapter, which we will not reach until the next time we're in Acts, but we're told a prophet comes and binds Paul's feet and hands and says, the Holy Spirit says if Paul goes to Jerusalem, this is what the Jews there will do to him. And Paul says, in essence, here, as he says there, if I, I'm ready to die for Jesus if need be. So the Holy Spirit is telling Paul, hey, here's what's going to go if you go. And the Ephesian elders here, and then in the next chapter, those listening to Paul, and the prophet in the next chapter seem to have these bitter tears as if they're saying, don't go, Paul. So what's happening? Is the Holy Spirit warning Paul not to go? Should Paul go? Uh, furthermore, we have this wording. It says, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem. But that could be a little misleading. The HCSB is a little bit more open about the room for interpretation here, wording it this way. And I am now I am on my way to Jerusalem bound in my spirit with a footnote stating, or in the Spirit, not knowing what I will encounter there. So the truth is, we don't know if Paul's saying he's fervent in spirit. Or if he's compelled by the Holy Spirit. Some say in verse 23, mentioning the Holy Spirit's warnings about what awaits Paul, that this has to be a reference to the Holy Spirit in verse 22. Others say, no, Paul's just being fervent. And maybe to be a little irreverent, maybe he has a martyr's wish. I lean towards the former. I think the Holy Spirit is leading Paul to Jerusalem and letting him know also what awaits him. And the only reason I lean that way is because of what the resurrected Jesus told Ananias. Do you remember Ananias? He's the unlucky guy who only knew of Paul when Paul was a terrorist to Christians. And without warning, Christ shows up to him and says, Hey, Paul's blind and only you can witness to him and bring him out of his blindness. Ananias is like, you've heard about this guy, right? <laughs> think he's in town to arrest me, not to be prayed over by me. Acts 9, 15 and 16, God says, Go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So when Paul was first called, God let Ananias in on the fact Paul's going to suffer. And furthermore, God didn't say, I will send him to suffer for my name, but to back it up a bit, he did say, I will show him. <laughs> so that to me sounds like God's saying he's going to get a preview to his suffering. Now, I think most of us, if we're honest, if we must suffer, don't tell us, <laughs> right? Like, because that's just going to add a whole other element of stagnation. 
But it seems at times, perhaps as testing for obedience, the God of the universe tells the dad who wanted a child for so long to go and sacrifice him. The God of the universe tells his son to go to Jerusalem and suffer. The God of the universe tells Peter, Truly, truly, I tell you, when you were young, you dressed yourself and walked where you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And God of the universe is telling Paul here, go to Jerusalem, there will be suffering. But Paul's willing to go. Because, says Paul, I consider my life of no value to me. Now, Paul doesn't mean this in the depressed sense, right? He he means this in the sacrificial sense, as he would tell the Romans, I urge you, therefore, brothers, on account of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual, or a footnote telling us, reasonable service of worship. The suffering here is out of obedience, not out of a desire or some misplaced martyr's prideful death wish. And it's out of obedience, as Paul will state as we finish here for the second time, returning to the second theme, that Paul's heart is set on the gospel. Paul considers his life of no value. If only I may finish my course and complete the ministry I have received from the Lord Jesus. The same ministry that Ananias heard about, wherein Paul was going to be shown how much he will suffer. The ministry of testifying to the good news of God's grace. This is how we face suffering. We, we reset our perspective. Paul, how can you willingly go into suffering? Because it's not about me. It's not about my comfort, my convenience. It's not about what if the Russians get to me while I'm in Ukraine. It's about what would Jesus do? It's not about what will this conviction of mine concerning certain social beliefs about sexuality or abortion do for me in the way of my reputation. It's about the good news of God's grace. See, God's grace is food for the hungry, care for the helpless, redemption and freedom for those who are enslaved to sin, regeneration for those who are dead in trespasses. And when a heart is set on the gospel, suddenly the need to bring God in His grace and His gospel outweighs the risk of danger. Paul knows the danger. He says in verse 25, Now I know that none of you among whom I have preached the kingdom will see my face again. You know, 1 Timothy 1.3 actually suggests that Paul did see the Ephesians at least once more. Timothy is the minister in Ephesus, and Paul says in that letter that he wrote very much later in his life, he says, when I left there, basically, there being Ephesus, and I went towards Macedonia, I told you thus and so. So in other words, he's speaking of another time he had likely been in Ephesus. So, was Paul wrong here? None of you will see my face again. Yes, he was. That doesn't mean Luke was wrong to record Paul stating what he stated there. Paul actually stated that. But, because he's going to Jerusalem and because the Lord has told him trouble awaits him, Paul believes this could be the last time he sees the Ephesians. And with that in mind, he has a few things to say, which we'll cover more of it next week, but starting with, 
his own conduct before them. He says in verse 26, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole will of God. The prophet Ezekiel, chapter 3 and chapter 33, talks about prophets of the Lord as watchmen. Watchmen, as the name suggests, were to watch for coming enemies, and if the watchman then sounded the alarm, the enemy is coming, but if nobody takes them seriously, or if the people dismiss them, or if they shrug them off, it's not the watchman's fault. <laughs> That's what Paul was getting at here. As we looked at with the, the new so-called Bible translation, there's some hard stuff in the whole counsel of God. Hard stuff for our society to hear. Hard stuff for believers to hold conviction, convictions about and still be received in society. It doesn't stop there. What, a, what about besides what sin is, period? How about what happens to unrepentant sinners? Is that kind of hard? How about when Jesus says things like, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform any miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. All right, with that, let's go to bed, right? Like, That's comforting, something to read at night. But this is the point. You know that Paul takes all of this seriously? (laughs) Paul says, the Lord's been showing me stuff that's going to happen in Jerusalem. It happened in Jerusalem for Jesus. I don't know what's going to happen to me, but I can't not go. And if he's that serious about heading into danger, what's it to him anywhere he goes about sugarcoating things? Have you been faithful to go wherever the Lord wants you to go? And have you been faithful to receive, accept, hold as conviction, and share as conviction the whole counsel of God? You know, Christ says, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. And confession in this sense is not just, I confess my sins to you, I receive your forgiveness, I'm yours. You know, the Richmond Declaration of Faith we're going through, some of the older Christians through the ages wrote similar statements of faith and called them confessions. The Westminster Confession, the Belgic Confession. Confess in the sense that Jesus was talking about comes from two Greek words that means together and come to the same conclusions. Are you together with Christ? Are you in full agreement with Christ even on the hard stuff? He says heaven and hell will pass away, but his word won't. Are you in alignment with that word? I can tell you this, that like Paul, if you do come to this place in full confession of Christ, in full agreement with him, it is in that gospel that you and I will find persistence even in the face of danger. Our passion for him will outweigh any risk because we will find that he's worth it. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I <clears throat> say it often as we read through this late, these later parts of Acts, and many of us think we're just reading itineraries. But as we dig in deep, we, we find truths. Father, you, you've given us an example of Paul, 
He even writes somewhere, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Help us to be good imitators by your Holy Spirit. Help us to have a face set towards your gospel, your kingdom, your glory. And help us to have a heart set on your word, on your gospel. To not be afraid, to not shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God with our lives, words, actions. Help us to confess you always before all people. Uh, Father, we want to do this faithfully. We want to do the will of the Father, as Jesus said. So help us to do these things. We pray that we would carry this conviction throughout our entire lives. Father, if you should test us this week, help us to be successful by your power. We ask and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.